Okay, if you may or may not have noticed, uh, you're, you're probably just happy to be here tonight, but the way that this book is broken down is not just 12 issues or 12 chapters, but it's broken down into two sections. The first three weeks that we were in here is one section, and that first section was understanding the church. Now we're taking it from, and that's a little bit abstract, even though we tried to connect it to where we are, what the church is about, and that sort of thing. But the second section, which is these nine weeks that will follow starting tonight, is participating in the church. And that is, I can't say it any other way without being not blunt, but if we are spectators, number one, we are not obedient, and number two, we will never grow up. And I'll give this illustration. I was thinking about this. This comes out of the really the end of our chapter, um, and I'm going to just read a sec, read a little thing, but I'll give a picture because there's nothing worse than listening to a bunch of words. I'll give a picture. If I throw this picture up here, all right, if you didn't see that, you were looking down, look at that again, all right. Okay, you know who this is. And okay, we got you to smile, you got you to think, all right. What, what do we know about Peter Pan, other than the fact that Disney made it into a very successful movie? Okay, he doesn't want to grow up, all right? And, and if you read, this is a really big if, if you read and did all of your homework, all right, um, you, you maybe hit the end of what J.I. Packer was talking about, and he referred to Peter Pan. It's been made into a fun kid story. But at the, end, at, the, at the heart of what Peter Pan is all about is, is essentially this. I just want always to be a little boy and to have fun. Can you think of a modern counterpart of a man who lived that out? And I'll give you a hint. He owned an amusement park called Neverland. Okay. I mean, here is, here is as we see, Peter Pan... Saying, and, and this is the part that gets lost in the cuteness of the Peter Pan movies that have been shown forever, is that the man who wrote the story of Peter Pan was really drawing out the fact, here's this boy that wants to be a boy, doesn't want to grow up, and wants to have fun. Um, sad to say, Michael Jackson died at the age of 50. Uh, of all things, the irony of it, um, do you remember what the title of his last concert series was to be? I mean, literally a week away from it. It was called This Is It. Little did he know that's exactly what was going to happen. But there was a man who at 50 years of age didn't want to grow up. Matter of fact, built an amusement park, sadly, that mirrored exactly what we're illustrating here tonight. And that is Peter Pan was the story of a little boy that didn't want to grow up and just wanted to have fun. And yes, we could say Michael Jackson never had a childhood and all the mess that went on and, and all that was sad. I mean, I, I remember watching the footage of the concert preparation leading up, and it was incredible, incredible pressure, incredible stuff. But at the end of the day, living that life and pursuing that emptiness led to nowhere but an early death, just like Elvis Presley and some others like that. So I say all that to say... We take that picture of Peter Pan, I don't want to grow up, I just want to have fun, and we say, well, we're adults, we don't think like that. But take that into our Christian life. We can still, on any given day, be very childlike in how we, not, not in our faith, our faith should be childlike, but childlike in how we 
I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to change. And as God keeps showing us, we're saying, like Peter Pan, I don't want to grow up. But really, as we're going to look at tonight, if you looked at some of the texts that are a part of this growing into Christ-likeness section, is of all people, not Peter Pan, but Peter the Apostle, writing, and, and this ought to be something that ought to catch our attention, just like Paul he writes his second letter to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy some powerful things in the second letter because Paul knows pretty certain he's going to die. And Peter, when he writes his second letter, you know, it's pretty certain when you're reading that second letter from Peter, he has a pretty good sense he's going to die too. So the very last thing he tells us is to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just a command to grow. It was a command to grow and to keep on growing don't stop because at any point when we stop we stutter we aren't growing we're going backward so that's where we're trying to go tonight Um, we want to see and and i I can't say this enough we want that at the end of the day if we live life just showing up to quote unquote play church and we don't recognize that the reason um as we we will see maybe you read it the reason and the case study of Brent, Brent found that worship suddenly started to get a little stale and he needed more experience, wasn't because the music wasn't rocking and it wasn't big time happening, it was because there wasn't this pursuit, this pursuit of Christ-likeness. So that's where we want to go tonight. So that being said, I throw out a question to you, two questions really, two questions to just kind of again prime the pump, Peter Pan flew up, he's got the pump going a little bit, but even more than that, just help me understand, why do people avoid getting involved in the church? And I'm not saying, you know, you can fess for yourself or fess for other people, but just generally speaking, why do people avoid getting involved in the church? Let's start there. Okay. Too busy. Okay. Keep that one in mind. Yes. Carol. Okay. Not too busy. We're not committed. Anything else? Probably list a bunch, but those are high on the list. Okay, very good. They think they're not needed. And, you know, honestly, in larger churches, that's really easy to happen. And as community grows, that's one of the dangers of a growing church is suddenly people feel like, number one, I'm either not wanted or not needed. All right? I'm just here, and you don't really need me. Great. What else? Okay. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's one of the... And this does happen. I've got to confess in churches, people get involved in a ministry, and if you do it well, you might do it for the rest of your life. I did say that to Jenny. I said, I heard you did really well with VBS last year. If you do it really well this year, there's a good chance you'll never stop doing that for the rest of your life. And, and so that's the good thing is you do a good job, you could be a lifer. You know? So if you don't want to be in the nursery changing messy diapers, screw up a few diapers, and you know, they'll still keep you. <laughs> they will keep you. All right. Anything else? Okay, maybe they don't feel like they can do it because we, you know, and I, I use the word avoid. If you notice italics there, that's to grab our attention in the sense that we don't do something because we think we can't. And I'll admit, you know, 100 years ago when I was in junior high and high school, last thing I wanted to do was get up in front of high school. A one to three minute speech seemed like an hour. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, I couldn't imagine that. And our last speech, my, my speech class in high school was a seven to 10 minute speech on my philosophy of life. I'm a knucklehead high schooler. I have no philosophy of life. What is that? 
and I got to talk about it for seven to ten minutes. But can God change us? Yes, he certainly can. So there are things that happen that avoid, but I would say that high on that list is two that were hit. We're too busy and we're not committed. And I wouldn't say not committed primarily to the church because that's usually what's said. You're not committed to this church. At the end of the day, if we're not committed to our relationship with Christ, we won't be committed to the body. Let's just put it that way. Um, We want to make it be like, hey, be committed to this church, but we're really playing that card the wrong way. The commitment is to Christ, and if there is that commitment, then there is a natural response to want to be committed to this body. Second question is, what would you say we do to motivate them to get involved? Having laid those things out, what do we need to help them to do? Good. Because if they think there's nothing for me to do is sharing, hey, there is this need. There are more needs than you realize. And maybe they're willing to jump in. Maybe they do have a heart that says I want to serve. What else? Yes, ma'am. We can be willing if we are doing a job and we see somebody else that has come in, been there a while, and is talented in that area, that we could be willing to back off and let them. Yeah. Absolutely. We're, 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 we're trying to work ourselves out of a job by getting somebody else involved. That doesn't mean that we go into a long sabbatical, but yes, we might transition to a new ministry. You know, and, and here's, here's the reality. We normally answer that second question, and I set you up to a degree. We normally answer that question, that second question, with practical, this is what we ought to do if this is true. If, if it is true that we're busy, not committed, and the list could really go on and on and on, then we look for practical solutions to that. But here's, here's really the, the reality of what we're hitting tonight, and that is when it's all said and done, getting them involved in the body starts with the issue we're looking at tonight and really is rooted in the issue we're looking at tonight, growing in Christ-likeness. And that is, if there's not a recognition that what Peter said is, I grow and I keep on growing, and that is a relational this way, so it motivates me this way with one another in the body, if I don't help them to see this, I can give them a lot of practical things, but on any given moment, they can flake out and say, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. This is just not doing it for me. And then it becomes, it's not doing it for me, rather than it's because I love Christ. So that's part of what we want to hit tonight. Now, again, hopefully in these last nine weeks as we look at the second part is participating in the church, I'm glad that when they put this together, they didn't just start listing here's ministries and here's how we need to think. They started with this issue because I really believe that this is the rock-solid foundation of how we need to view it. So that being said, go to page 4.1. If you haven't already turned there... Uh, Turn to 4.1 in your books. And as I've said, and I won't say this perhaps after this week, I don't like to just read this thing because you can read. Uh, But I do want to hit a couple of things. And while I read, uh, this is probably not the best way to do this, but I'll let you do this. Down at the sound bites down there, there are a number of not-so-good statements this time. All right? There's a number of them. And, And... I just say, which one just bugs you more than another one, and tell me why. And I, and I want to just kind of hit the overview of where we're going tonight and then go into these sound bites to see which 
how we do think, and, and there's one in particular that I'm going to latch on to, and you'll understand why, but you think about which ones are negative. So here's grasping the issue. The key questions that we're focusing on in growing in Christlikeness is really two things. They're under grasp of the issue is how can you tell if you're growing in your faith? In other words, are there benchmarks? Are there tangible ways that I can look at your life and say, wow, I know this person's growing? But the reality is, uh, out of 178 hours in a week, assuming we're here Sunday and Wednesday night, we're going to see each, hour, each, each other for a total of maybe four hours or more, somewhere in that range. There's another 174 hours. I never see you. And that's really where most of our Christian life is lived out in the trenches, not in the put on the Sunday, Wednesday face and show up and do church. All right. So I don't know. So how do how do we practically measure that, which is a great question. And are there any principles or processes that can help us grow in our knowledge of Christ? Because I think as I look around this room and know the some of the stories of your faith in Christ, most of us would say we know it's not just a matter of knowledge about Jesus. In other words, that if we had a Bible Trivial Pursuit game in here, which we've got one back in the teen room, if we pulled that thing out and played, you'd be like, I can answer all those questions. I can tell you tons of stuff about Jesus. Obviously, that's not the point. It's, it's knowing him in a way that endears me to him and makes me like him. It's like looking at a couple... Uh, this is why Bill and Tricia came in, or Bill came in and made the coffee. They ditched tonight because it's their 43rd anniversary tonight. All right, so get their email, send them an email, send them a text. Happy anniversary! This is the, this, yeah. It's like, come on, you know, you couldn't celebrate that tomorrow. It's like, what's up with that? But here is like many couples that have been married for many years. You see sometimes couples that after 40, 50, maybe even 60 years, they even start to look alike, let alone act alike, think alike, respond alike because they've spent all that time together and they've started to merge as Genesis 3 says what happened. They are one. Well, that's what should be happening with us is as we are thinking, relating, being with Christ, there should be measurable ways. Now, looking down at the sound bites in the bottom page 4.1, of those, which one just bugs you the most? Which one you're like, I just... I. Can't disagree with that more. And, and you know that if I'm going to say, tell me that, which one, I'm also going to ask, you know, why. All right? So, yes, Carolyn, which one? It is um, growing in Christ-likeness is only automatic. You are a professional Christian, like a ministry or a pastor. See, now you stole mine. Yeah, thanks. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, so why? Why does that one bug you? It I Sounds good to me. Absolutely. And I'm going to come back and revisit that one. That is part of the mindset that is grown, that grew out of the dark ages when the Catholic Church was in their heyday and then the Reformation began to change it. There was the clergy and there's another word, the laity. In other words, there are the people who are connected to God, who speak for God, who are between us and God, and then there's the rest of us down here. And, and that has infected for forever 
even down to this very issue right here that Carolyn's bringing up, and that is at the end of the day, as you heard me say in the first week or maybe the second week or maybe both, at the end of the day, any person serving, particularly pastors, missionaries, whatever, on our best days, we are still sinners ministering to sinners. That doesn't change. Great. Thank you. What else? Which other one bugs you? Why? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Oh, thank you, man. You guys are bringing up the perfect ones. I think I, I tell you the story about the guy that wanted to buy my car on a Wednesday night and didn't buy the car instead argued about the fact of why he doesn't go to church. I tell you the story. All right. So I'm selling this car that was just a junk car. It was one of my first cars I ever had, a piece of junk. And this guy calls and says, I want to come see your car. It's Wednesday night. He wanted, I, I'm getting ready to go to church. I'm, trying to, I'm thinking, just buy the car. I don't care what you want to talk about. He finds out I'm going to church. I'm from the church. I was a youth pastor at Inner City way back years ago. And he begins to tell me, oh, yeah, I don't go to church. And I'm like, oh, really? Interesting. Why? And he tells me he's a Christian. He goes, and he takes 1 John chapter 2. It says, you don't have need of anyone teaching you because you have the unction or the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So his, his twist on that was, it says right there, I don't need anybody to teach me. I got the Holy Spirit, so I don't need to do church. And I'm like, that's great. You've got to understand, and I didn't say this because I wanted to buy my car. <laughs> I don't want to get into theological discussions. Like, say whatever you want. You want to buy the car, all right? But at the end of the day, here's the reality. Almost every cult that is connected to Christianity started that way. They took one verse or a part of a verse or sections of verses and took it to say what they wanted it to say without looking at the whole context. So, yes. I could say, according to 1 John 2, if I threw out Ephesians 4 and a whole lot of other texts, I could say, I don't need to go to church. But I can't say that. Because in reality, living in isolation with God's word is exactly what monks tried to do, and it didn't work. And they are a case study through the years of monk life doesn't work because that's not how God envisioned the church of us growing in Christ-likeness. It's us creating friction in relationships, facing difficulties, facing the sins of others as Christ faced them and responding as Christ would to become like him. So that's where we're trying to go. And that's why, honestly, and I I won't take time because i got to keep moving, um, it's one of those things where... How many of you, I'll just ask this tonight, how many of you grew up at least in one church or at some point in your life where the church mindset was if you are a good Christian, if you are a spiritual person, you are doing this list of things should not do. In other words, a list of do's and don'ts. How many of you were ever at a church like that, attended a church like that? (laughs) You guys are looking like, okay, so he's going to look and see who it was, all right? You know, here's, here's the reality. Even if we didn't attend a church like that, sometimes that was a subtle message that was out there because there were decades of that mindset. And that is, if we do these things, you know, it's the old, I don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, or hang around with those that do, all right? That kind of thinking um, is, is the reality that's been out there. But once we've listed it down to this, what happened was, then if I have kept your list which sounds remarkably like the Pharisees. But we didn't call it that. You know, like, this is spiritual, this is holy. If we see that Jesus, in the times that he did get ticked, was always to them for their fake faith, all right? 
And that's what we're talking about, is not a list of do's and don'ts. If we reduce it to that, we've missed the point. We've missed the point of what growing in Christlikeness is. It's like John Piper saying, uh, giving an illustration. I remember this illustration, him telling his wife, she say he was to give his wife flowers for her anniversary. And she's like, well, thank you, John, for giving me these flowers. He goes, well, that's okay. It's my duty. I should give you these flowers. You know, like, well, that's really going to kind of kill the moment. It's not going to go well. But yet, essentially, that's what it is. It becomes a list of I needed to do this because anniversary, give flowers, check it off, move on. Where's the relationship? Well, it was missing in that moment, and that's where we're trying to go tonight. So we have this, I said, I think I said Anthony. I meant to say Shannon. Shannon, um, growing in her walk with Christ. Go to 4.2. I'll just read this quickly. Like I said, I don't like to read things that are lengthy, but I want to because I think it hits a nerve as we walk through this. Here is Shannon uh, going through her walk with God, and it says, She had made such amazing progress, top of page 4.2, in her knowledge of the Bible that others told her that she put them to shame. She became involved in a small group at her church where she found a place to serve others. Recently, Shannon has been feeling as if she is in a spiritual slump. You ever felt that? Okay, I was just making sure we were all nodding. I'm hoping that uh, we would all say yes. Been there, felt that. Why? That's the question I ask when face that. Why? So we begin to answer that. Prayer and meditation were once a priority after she heard someone say, no Bible, no breakfast. Now, however, Shannon is more irregular in her quiet time. Some of her friends tell her not to be concerned but she feels as if days without a quiet time don't go very well. Oh, wow, there's one of those, another twisted thinking that we do, all right? Something's going wrong today because I didn't have my Bible time, my time with God. Or on the flip side, I had my devotions, God, what's going on? I read the Bible today, I pray today, what gives? How come I've got this really rotten day going on? So this is part of our, uh, our, our stinking thinking. So, she hasn't been able to attend her small group as often as before. In the early years of her Christian walk, Shannon used to marvel at the way God had shaped her attitudes towards work and difficult people. Now she feels guilty because a few days ago she lost her temper with a customer. Shannon's biggest worry is that she doesn't seem to be making the same gains in her faith that she once did. What would you tell Shannon to help her understand what it means to grow spiritually and to encourage her in her walk with Christ? And, and again, I, I'm going to say that if I were to ask that of us, including myself, if we were to answer that, we'd probably throw out a lot of practical responses to here are some things you can do, Shannon, to get back on track, to get out of that spiritual slump. Um, but at the end of the day, even those practical steps can be dangerously close to a checklist of do this, do this, do this, do this, and still miss the point of really what might be going wrong with her. And that is it has turned into do this, do this, do this, do this. And all we're going to do is foster that in her life. So what we're going to do is try to look at tonight what a couple of these scriptures are saying about what does growing in Christ-likeness look like, and particularly as J.I. Packer gives us a really helpful uh, but brief section on growing into Christ-likeness will help bring it together for us. So there on page 4-2, we're going to go through these three scriptures tonight, these three chunks to kind of pick them apart. As I've said, the steps are grasping the issue. So I throw out, here's what I would say the issue is. 
If we ask what is the central question or issue before us, um, it asks you to put it into words. So here's what I put into words for this to make it simple for myself. What does it mean to become like Christ? So there's the what part of the question. What does it mean to become like Christ and how do I do it? All right. So if I'm thinking through where this is trying to take me and where this is trying to make me think, all right, it's starting to get me to think, what do I need to do to become like Christ? Because obviously that's the title of the section, Growing into Christ-likeness. But what's the, what's the seven keys, the three keys? Well, obviously that's not what I'm looking for. There's got to be something in Scripture that isn't as easy as flicking switches or taking steps. And the reason I know that, well... Let me ask you this. What are some metaphors or pictures in Scripture to describe what the Christian life is like? What are some pictures of the Christian life? Okay, running in a race. And is it a sprint? Uh, It's more like a marathon. What other pictures? Okay, a farmer. All right, there's an easy life. All right, what's that? It's a battle. Ephesians 6. It is warfare. It is relentless, exhausting, never-ending warfare. So that being said, it can't simply be a checklist of do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. There's got to be something more to it because the picture is this is not only going to be hard, but as I said a couple weeks ago, Scripture makes very clear that to live the Christian life, it's impossible without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible without God. That's why we needed Christ to do for us what we could not do, and we still need the indwelling Spirit to help us to do what He expects us to do if we are His child. So, let's look at these scriptures. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, as I said, Peter is saying this at the end of his life, probably at some point thereafter, very soon thereafter, was crucified upside down, as we know from history. Here's what he says, Therefore, my dear friends, since you already know this, and, and if you notice, he writes brothers and sisters at the beginning of both his letters but four times in his second letter he says dear friends that's part of the wording that helps us to see he's probably writing this right before he was martyred Uh, because when you're writing tender relational words to people dear friends dear friends dear friends dear friends um, you're getting ready to say goodbye to these dear friends and here's what he's saying as he's saying goodbye You already know this. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, those two verses, Peter says at the very end, and as I already alluded to, it's a command to grow, and the way he put it was a command that means do it, and keep on doing it. It's not like a one and done, all right? Because here's the danger. I'll I'll give you two uh, denominational or theological directions. John and Charles Wesley, what denomination are they notorious for starting? Okay, what word comes in, in that word Methodist? Method, all right? They had developed... A system of doing these things will make you spiritual, like getting up at 4 a.m. to pray for three hours and so on and so forth. They were very methodical in their religion, in their Christianity. And honestly, it wasn't until Charles Wesley, of all things, went to America as a missionary, and I think he landed in Georgia or somewhere thereabouts. It was only when he got there that he realized he wasn't even a believer, and here he is going as a missionary. So it can create Methodism is if I think... 
doing step by step. Then there's the other flip side. Some of you may or may not have heard of Keswick theology. It grew out of a, a system of thinking out of these holiness conferences that started many, many years ago at the early at the turn of the century. And the whole point that kind of spun out of that was this idea of let go and let God. The problem is you're trying too hard. You're trying to do, 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 do. So go over here, and instead, you just sit back and let it happen. Um, now, as we have seen through history, swing the pendulum that way, you got a problem. You swing the pendulum this way, you got a problem. So growing in Christ-likeness can't be a list of step, 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 step that Peter is talking about. And it can't be just sit back uh, passively waiting for this to just kind of bloom out of me. All right? It's not going to. Uh, we're going to have to see that there's more to it than that. Now, with what Peter said, here's the questions that I just I throw out to you. Uh, I picked one from each of these. And if you've done the homework, and I'm looking at Carolyn because usually she's like the benchmark for who did the homework and who didn't. All right? She gets the apple. Oh, no, teachers get the apple. I guess she gets the star. All right? Um, if, if I'm to say, if Peter has given us verse 18, but we skip over verse 17, the, the, the writer of this book asks a really good question. What is the contrast in verse 17 to growing in grace that he identifies in verse 17? Because we just usually look at the positive. But what is he saying before? Because the word but in verse 18 is telling us there's a contrast. He used a specific word to show there's a contrast between what he just said and what he's going to say now. What is it that is in contrast? What can you see from that statement there? Negatively. I mean, these are both negatively. Pardon? Being carried away. Okay. Being carried away from what? I'm sorry, being carried away by error. Okay. Which means if you're carried away by error, you're carried away from what? Truth. Okay, very good. So one of the things he says, I'm warning you, you can easily be distracted from, diverted from, detoured from the truth. All right? That's one of the dangers. All right? That's one of the contrasts. What's another one? And I'll give you a hint. It's at the end of verse 17. Okay. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? You could lose your salvation. Uh, you know, I kind of had it, lost it, had it, lost it. Um, there are people who would say that's true. But I would say... You can't, you're not going to be able to build that from Scripture. And the point that he's using here is not that you lose your salvation. Here's the picture. The picture that Peter is using is you lose your footing. All right? It's like losing your balance. So the idea is, first thing that he warns us about is we can be distracted from the truth. The second thing is we can be disoriented in our faith. All right? It's like, um, it's like standing... You know, I've never been to the uh, Grand Canyon, but I did go to Colorado years ago and was on the bridge. Holy smoke, what's the name of the bridge? It's in Canyon City, Colorado, the Royal Gorge. There's a bridge across the Royal Gorge, all right? It's one of those bridges that I remember looking over, taking a picture, looking down that would just make people puke or, you know, you take your car across. But it's one of those things that you stand there and you know there's a fence there, but somehow when you stand there, even though you know it feels secure, if you lean so far or a certain way, you suddenly feel disoriented, like, I'm going over. You know? You're not going over, but you feel like that. Well, that's what he's trying to say here. Here is the warning that you and I can be distracted from the truth by error that sounds pretty plausible. Um, you know, the problem with Joel Olstein is he smiles and make, makes errors sound really plausible. Because as I had... 
Uh, those of you that went to Bob Jones many, many moons ago, Dr. Panosian, uh, the history teacher that I, I forgot everything else from my history class. I'll never forget this statement. He said, the worst kind of error is truth mixed with error. And I'm like, boy, I remember that because that makes a lot of sense because it's dangerous. That's how cults are built. That's why Joel Olstein is a really dangerous man and his wife is just as dangerous as him if you've watched anything of recent days. All right? And it's because, here's the flip side. This is why Peter says now grow and keep on growing in this relationship with Christ because if you don't, you're going to lose your footing and you're going to be distracted from the truth. You're going to be disoriented in your faith and you're going to start buying into things and suddenly you're going to feel the Shannon slump and it's because the Shannon slump has come because I have not kept that relationship strong with Christ. Here's another text, Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, top of the, second, the next page. Um, and again, this is one that is really instructive, but we don't have time to develop it at great length. Here's what the writer of Hebrews 5 says. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. All right? If I'm looking through this, and again, this is like, you know, get involved, keep you awake, um, think through this, because really if, if we were to do our homework, as I keep saying, in a perfect world, we all did our homework, and we all show up ready to go with the answer. The scripture here tonight, what are some of the indications, as the question is asked, what are some of the indications that these readers are very immature spiritually? What are some things that just jump off the page there? Okay, they lack spiritual discernment, all right? They're not making the right choices, all right? And, and can I just throw this out to you illustration-wise? Just dumb idea comes to my mind because I saw the big old thing of candy out there. Children, when they're young, they want to eat really unhealthy things at the worst possible times, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like if they could have a bowl of peanut M&Ms for breakfast and lunch and dinner because it's got peanuts in it, even though it's coated in chocolate, it's all good. I mean, that sounds ridiculous to us, but that's exactly what he's saying here, is a lack of growing in Christ-likeness, spiritual maturity means I'm going to make decisions that seem ridiculous um, because I'm not listening. Good. What else? What else do we see here? Negatively in there. Okay. They're not growing up. I mean, it's, it's like a kid that's been held back and held back and held back and held back in school. He is 15 years old, but he's in fifth grade still. All right? That's the picture. Just think of how weird that would look, how awkward that would feel, and how ridiculous that would be. But that's the picture, and that is they, this is somebody who should know this by now, even just by default. The kid's heard this for years. You know, it's like, come on, kid, you've got to be able to move on to the next grade because you've heard this year after year after year after year. What is the hang-up? And the hang-up is some of these other things. Good. What else? Thank you, Sierra. What else? Go back to the first verse. Let's just start with that one. 
What does verse 11 say? Slow to learn. What do we mean by that when we say slow to learn? Because we might automatically assume something in modern thinking. Um, we say slow to learn. We say somebody is a slow learner. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if we're not saying slow learner means they don't have the ability to learn, what is the problem? Okay. I would take two words and put them together. They are not teachable. All right. In other words, it's not an ability issue. issue it's a teachability issue. That's the problem. Um, they have knowledge. Um, this kid who is still stuck in fifth grade at 15 years of age is just plain not teachable. He's not stupid. He just doesn't want to learn the stuff. Um, that's what we're wrestling with here. We're lacking spiritual discernment because we're not teachable. We should be teaching other people. What else? What else do you see here? I'll throw another one at you. Verse 13. What do you see in verse 13? Okay. They don't know, quite frankly, right from wrong. They're still goofed up on what is right and wrong. We can say, you know, they're, they're, they're not acquainted with teaching about righteousness, and we could say, well, then teach them a course on righteousness, teach them a course on holiness. But that isn't the point. The point is, as the writer is saying, you've heard this over and over and over again. By now, you could be a teacher because you know this stuff. So the issue isn't knowledge. Here's where... Um, I'm just going to slap myself in the face and probably everybody here that's been a believer for, let's say, 10 years or more. Our problem, let's admit, isn't a lack of knowledge. Our problem in growing in Christlikeness is exactly what this, is whole, this whole thing is zeroing in on, and that is we are able to learn, but we haven't been teachable. In other words, we've heard it, and we've heard it, and we've heard it again, but somehow we're still stuck in fifth grade in this area of our life or areas of our life. And because of that, that's led us to make poor decisions, and because of that, we're stunted spiritually as a Christian. So this is the picture that the book of Hebrews, uh, book of Hebrews in particular in this area, because if you look at the book of Hebrews, there are five passages or five sections, I should say, Five warning sections to warn these people. You say you're a believer. If this is not true, you better stink, stop and think very clearly. You may not be a believer. And then the writer writes some more. And then he gives another warning. And then another warning. So there's five different warning sections in the book of Hebrews because he wants them to realize if you say that you're a believer, but you're just playing the Christian game, you need to stop and think you may not really be living by faith. Because that's why when you get to chapter 11 of Hebrews, he's going to say, without faith, it's what? Impossible to please him. That isn't just, uh, God's not going to be happy with me today if I'm not living the faith life today. That is not the point. Because he's going to drive it home through all these biographical illustrations in chapter 11. The point is, if your faith is real, that it, and, and it is showing itself in a maturity and a growing knowledge that is lived out in relationship with Christ. If that is true, then you are pleasing to God. You are not doing the list. You are following the one who has fulfilled the list, quite frankly. He fulfilled the law for us. All right? Finally, Second Peter chapter 1. 
verses 5 through 8. And this is an interesting one. It says, For this very reason, Peter says, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. All right, so that takes us down to this last text. Now, it's an interesting one because, again, this is one of those texts that could be problematic in how people interpret it. Because at the beginning in verse 5, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to add. And then he goes on to say this, 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 and this. Now, that plays out really well in a John Charles Wesley mindset, all right? You create some methods. You say, if you do these things, you get up at 4 a.m., and you got the guys getting up at 4 a.m., and you're praying, and you're meeting for a study at this time, and you're doing this and this and this, then you got your team, and, and you got a way to make sure this is happening. And so, yeah, you are adding, and you are growing. But there's one problem. We, if, if we just think in terms of this dude I talked to on a Wednesday night trying to sell my car. He took one text to make his point. I don't go to church because I got the Spirit and I don't need anybody else to teach me. Bible, I got a verse to show you that. And I'm thinking, man, I got a whole bunch of other verses. You have no idea. I wanted to go off that night, but I wanted to sell my car more. All right. But here it says, make every effort to add. And Paul, Paul, Peter does not connect that to anything other than you and me. So I asked this question that I threw out for you. Oops. I asked this question I threw out. How are we to add these qualities to our lives? Because it can sound like you and I, we got to do this. Uh, I got to make this happen. You got to make this happen. And you got to keep on making this happen. How are we to add these qualities to our life? And you're like, good question. Yes, sir. Wes. Okay. That is part of it. Now, here's, here's where I'm hinting at. And I, I'm throwing out a, a, a slippery fish here. And that is, at the end of the day... Um, did I just say something wrong? Slippery fish? Like, yeah. <laughs> all right. In other words, it's hard to snag, all right? Something... I saw a couple little snakes today, so slippery snake, whatever. Um, at the end of the day, it sounds like Peter is saying... You and I just need to man up or woman up, all right, and get this done. Do these things, give it effort, add these things. But is that a problem if that's exactly all I say? Is that a problem? Why is that a problem? Okay, it's mechanical. Somebody develop that further, run with that further. Okay, it's based on my effort. It's a... Okay. And where is God in that picture that you guys just drew? He's not in that picture. All right? That is where we're having to wrestle with. All right? That is, and obviously, that's not what Peter is saying, because if you're going to read through what Peter said in the first letter and the second letter, he's tying it back to over and over that you can't do this alone. Matter of fact, in his first letter, he's going to hark back to his ups and he's going to say the, the devil's like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. How did Peter know that? Because Jesus
you like wheat, but I prayed for you. But just understand, Peter, you're still going to mess up, but you're not going to lose your faith. You know, your faith is going to continue. And Peter write, writes about it in his letter saying, this is going to happen, but God's going to use that to make you more steadfast. So the question is the nagging question, and that is, how do we add these qualities to our lives? Well, thank you for asking that question. Here's where we're going to go, uh, because our time is slipping. It always goes so fast. Go to page 4.5, Growing into Christ-likeness, with, by J.I. Packer. Um, yes, sir. Absolutely. So what you just said is the tension that's in the room. I mean, you you hit it exactly right. The tension in the room is it can't be over here with let go and let God, and it can't be over here with just doing the list. Where where do we land this plane somewhere in the middle? Because in all reality, what this is doing, what it ought to be doing, if the end of all things is even Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 says... But bodily exercise profits a little, but discipline is profitable unto all things. And he goes on to say, profitable for godliness. But our problem is, if discipline is the end rather than the means to the end, that's where we go off the mark. This list can be a disciplined means to the end as long as we see the end is what we're talking about tonight, growing in Christ-likeness. If the end is, I've done this list and therefore I am such and such a person, then I've missed the point because then I have erred on the Methodist side. Or if over here is just like let it all happen and you know whatever, whatever will be, will be, um, that's the problem as well. So you're right. That's the tension that we're having here. And, and honestly, because I knew that this is one of those things that I'm not going to be able to get through all the stuff that J.I. Packer said, I'm going to try to tie the two together with two scriptures tonight. I mean, I'm going to throw something on here in a few minutes to tie it all together. But let me just hit five quick, quick things that J.I. Packer says to help measure it. Because you're right. We need to have some type of benchmark measuring. It's like, wow, this is going to show my age. And I don't know if anybody's going to remember this. Anybody ever heard of the Fosbury flop? Okay, yeah, that's a figure deal. That's old people. All right, this was a dude that did the high jump, and he did the high jump during, I don't know, the 72 Olympics, 76, I have no idea. All right, and it was a high jump that was strangely non-normal. How's that for a great, great description? Strangely not normal. But it worked, all right, and he's able to get higher and higher. All right, well, we're talking about 
how do we grow in Christ-likeness? What are some benchmarks? Well, J.I. Packer is going to hit some of these, and I think they're worth at least highlighting. If you get the highlighters, highlight. If you don't, fine. Here are five things on page 4.5. I just want to hit quickly because I think he hits key ones and then try to tie together the tension that that, uh, Troy has brought up here. There on page 4.5, over in the far left column, it says, Sign one is a growing delight in praising God with an increasing distaste for being praised oneself. All right? That's the first one. In other words, there's something happening in my life that it's not really all about me. It's, it's becoming all about God. And, 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 and honestly, let's go back to Shannon. Life can easily slip after years of being a Christian to becoming more and more about me over here, right? The first days of being a Christian, the first months, maybe the first years, it's just like, wow, this is great. I can't get enough of this. And then suddenly that I start slipping back over here and this delight from praising God becomes more about what makes me happy, you know, what, what works for me. Here's the si- second sign that he throws out. And I want to just throw these out and a couple other things and try to pull it all together. Down at far, that column there on the left, sign two is a growing instinct for caring and giving with a more pronounced dislike of the self, self-absorption that constantly takes without either caring or giving. In other words, love. How's that for a big, long description of being a loving person? But really, it's the idea of not being self-absorbed. We can easily, I mean, we talk about this big word, narcissistic, all right? Somebody can be a narcissist. In other words, it's all about me. But yet, that is the heart. This is why I, I am... I am not for joining together psychology and theology or psychology and God's word to solve man's problems because at the heart of psychology is a mindset that says no God, no sin, no problem, all right? And so how can I take that and, and mesh it together with the word of God and make a, salute, a solution to it? Because our natural problem is at the heart of our problem is we are absorbed in ourselves. And if we're told, well, you just got to focus on yourself and make yourself feel better and, and do something for yourself and you're worth it and all this kind of stuff, so you're going to go out and buy shampoo because you're worth it. You know, it's like, really? And, and yet that's what it is. You know, it's like burger mentality. Have it your way. The emphasis on your way. And that works because that's how we naturally are bent. But knowing that God is at work in my life is when it isn't about what I want. And the tension of relationships in the church, in the home, in the workplace, that's why isolation doesn't create, doesn't allow for those tensions and therefore doesn't allow for that growth. When I go rogue and I go isolated, when I start going by myself, I I take the very dynamic out that God has put into community in the body of Christ to help me become like Christ. Because Christ was thrown in the masses and Christ was among the masses. He came unto his own and his own did what? They rejected him. They didn't receive him. So it's exactly, even with our own, that happens. And that's part of the dynamic. Here's a third one. Sign three, bottom of page 4.5, left column. Sign three is a growing passion for personal righteousness with a more acute distress at the godliness and immorality of the world. And I'll go on and on. But the point is, we can look at that and go, yeah, those sinners out there and those people that are doing wrong. I don't think that's what J.I. Packer was hitting on. The point is, hopefully, if we are growing like Christ, then it is leading us to recognize not just those sinners out there, 
that sinner I see in the morning, how in the world did Jesus love me? And how in the world does he still love me? And how in the world does he still give me all the good things he does when I know me? And he's known a lot more about me before he's revealed it to me, and he's still revealing it to me, but all the while saying, I still love you, I still love you, I still love you. I've always loved you if you're my own, all right? Go over to the second column, sign four, a growing zeal for God's cause. And, and again, I, I won't belabor this other than to say, people can say, I'm not a soul winner, and as you've heard me say at some point here, at community. I've never liked the word soul winner because none of us have ever won a soul to Christ. All right? That's a misnomer. At the end of the day, we are communicators. We are, as Paul said, ambassadors giving a message from the king. Whether they respond has nothing to do primarily with me making it work. Uh, Unless, of course, I'm communicating a wrong message. All right? But if I'm content, and here's where we just plug it into life. Let's get really awkward here tonight. If, If I can just stop and think, number one, do I know my neighbors around me? And I don't mean like these guys right here. I mean the people that you live close to. Uh, Do I know my neighbors around me? Do I even know their names? And I ask this question often when I think in terms of evangelism and us, our zeal for, for God's cause. If I can answer that question, no, I don't know their names, then I can assume at least a couple of things. Number one, I'm probably not sharing the gospel with them because number two, I'm probably not praying for them because I don't know them. And, and we can talk about doing whatever as a church, but at the end of the day, let's start with that and say, all right, God, I got to start baby steps. I got to start in fifth grade going, I've been hearing for years I need to share the gospel. Help me to at least start finding out my neighbors before it gets cold and we never talk to anybody for the next five months find out their names and start praying for them, and then when we have something, we take it and run with it, all right? Finally, sign five is a greater patience, bottom of the column, bottom right column, is a greater patience and willingness to wait for God and bow to his will. Going back to Hebrews 5, a child demands his way and his time. Hebrews 5 is talking about that, all right? Should have grown up, should be a teacher, still eating baby food, and... When we still eat baby food, it's because we are still wanting our way and our time on our terms. All right? Now, how do I tie this all together? Because the reality is we're down to the last four minutes. Wait, that, right, that clock's not right, right? <laughs> that is the right clock. Okay, darn. I thought I had a couple extra minutes. All right, it was the one out there that was wrong. All right. Let me just tie it together this way. I'm going to throw this up here because... I've already kind of consulted, and I want to tie it together this way. Uh, Can you look up Galatians 2.20 for me? All right. And can I ask you, while you're flipping through the Bible over there, Jan, would you look up for us uh, Psalm 37.4? Galatians 2.20, Troy, Psalm 37.4. I should have given you Psalm 37.4 because that's the one I want first. So sorry I gave you that one first. So Psalm 37.4, would you read that for us? Jan, please. <laughs> Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Okay. Let me just pause with that. Probably we've seen it written somewhere. We probably, some of us have memorized that verse. We didn't even need that. We could have just quoted it. Um, we, we like to latch on to the second part of the verse because it says, 
God will give us the desires of our heart. And we could run around this room, and we may or may not fess up, but we can have desires, whether spoken, unspoken, known, or unknown. we got a list of stuff we would like. All right, let's just be honest. But that verse says something about desire. It's rooted to God giving us our desires is rooted to us delighting in God. In other words, this isn't a bargain with God. This isn't a contract deal with God. That's not what that verse is saying. And, and you know, probably as a younger person, I might have looked at that verse thinking, all right, God, I'm, I've been delighting in you, so it would be nice if things start going my way. Um, so I'll keep doing some more delighting, assuming you're going to come through on that. But here's the reality. If we think that way, we've missed the point of what David's saying over here. David is saying over here, and he's saying this, notice, at the end of his life. Because if you look at the end of that psalm, he says, later in that psalm, I have been young, now I am old, but I've not seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. So David's writing this at the end of his life. And he's saying this. The, the reality for you and me is this. If, if you and I are delighting in God, we will see our desires come. But you know what happens between delighting in God and our desires coming? God begins to change our desires. And so suddenly, more and more stuff starts coming that we want because we're finally wanting the right things. It's like Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's not just, this is not a bargain deal with God. This is growing in Christ-likeness, growing in grace, knowing Christ, and I'm going to tie this to Galatians 2.20 in a minute, is starting with this mindset that I am there, I am here. God has made me to delight in Him, and He's going to pour out these desires. He's going to take care of these desires. But understand, it's like people that didn't see the connection of the Old Testament and the New Testament in the middle. That something here in the middle for connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament was the cross of Jesus Christ. For us, that's something here in the middle of delighting in God. He gives me the desires of our heart is Galatians 2.20. Would you read that for us? Okay. Here's where I'm going to, if I can, throw a picture up here, tying these two together. All right? If I'm tying these two together, and this is how we'll end tonight, we're saying over here that a part of, and and I I realize walking out of an hour on a Wednesday night, I'm happy if you remember two things, all right? Um, If you remember three, it's been a really good night, all right? So we'll stick to two things, two verses that I hope ties it all together. What ties it all together is if I have become a Christian, a genuine Christian, and I'm growing in Christ-likeness, what God has put in my heart is a desire to delight in Him. Ultimately, seeing that Him being Christ because we see God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we are changed. But here is the process in the middle. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but what? Christ lives in me. Now, here's, here's the ugly reality. I'll just kind of connect these two dots and you'll have it there. Here's the ugly reality. And this is the part that we don't like. This growing in Christ-likeness, it really is a part of what he says here, but it's part of what he doesn't say here. We want that but we don't want the process. 
Because here's what Paul said. I have been crucified with Christ. But Paul would also echo what Jesus said. He said, I die daily. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross daily, follow me. And I'll, I'll give you this picture very quickly, like 60 second picture. The Romans had created the most gruesome in that time and still to this day, one of the most gruesome ways to die in crucifixion. So when Jesus said to his disciples, take up your cross, follow me, they had no clue, like why would he even say that? Because at that point, it was not even on their radar why he would say that. But here's what Jesus is saying to him, what he is saying to us, what is at the heart of growing in Christlikeness. It is, it can be a list of these are things we need to do. But the only way that will happen is if my desire is toward God and I'm willing to go through the process. And here's the process. That crucifixion dying on a cross means a slow, agonizing, painful, excruciating death of myself so that Christ lives through me. In other words, it's not just I am doing these list of things and I got my disciplined things down. I am responding to the Spirit of God as He is showing me what He is trying to literally pull out of my life painfully like a cross death. That's what He's doing. And, and that's really, if we're going to connect the two, yes, it isn't let go and let God. It is hold on to God because I can't do this by myself. But it isn't over here. I got this covered. You know, I, I've been reading the books. I got the list down. I can do it. No, because God's going to show you you can't do it. And he's going to do that through trials, struggles, and through you and me falling on our face a bazillion times, bloodied and bruised and going, I don't want to get up. And he says, that's the cross life. If I'm willing to do that, it's Christ living in me. It is growing in Christ-likeness. So I encourage you, take those two verses, memorize them, connect them in your thinking, develop that thinking, and maybe sometime if you didn't get a chance to read, is a really good article by J.I. Packer. Sorry we went over. Let's pray. We'll go home. Father, thank you tonight uh, that because of Christ, you, we can call you our Father. There is nothing in us that would make us be uh, people that you would naturally want to have in your family. It is only because of your grace that you have called us, you have saved us, and you are changing us so that one day you glorify us. We thank you for that. And I thank you tonight for the reminder of what we are to be participating in first and foremost, and that is to grow to become like Jesus Christ. If we do that, we glorify you. And that's our desire tonight, and that's our prayer. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.